this morning, as we continue on our series on personalities in Scripture that uh, you, the congregation, have provided to me to speak on, we're going to various parts of the Bible quite often that we sometimes don't um, read very often. As we're reading through the Bible, we just sort of avoid those sections because they're not teaching what we want to teach, or maybe we don't dwell on them because we think we already know what it says and we already learned everything we need, and so we skip on to more interesting parts. And Probably the last time you had a lesson on Zacchaeus, for a lot of you, it was done on a felt board in Sunday school. And, uh, you know, we're just, you know, we, we get to that point in Luke, and it's like, yeah, Zacchaeus, we little man, we got it. And we just kind of keep going. We skip ahead a few verses, and, and we don't necessarily dwell there. But this, this name was submitted, and uh, it, sort of, it sort of brought me up short, because it's kind of like, I don't know if you remember, it's probably like 10, 15 years ago now, you remember Kellogg's cornflakes, they had commercials, and they were kind of getting overrun by the chocolate frosted sugar bombs and the Fruit Loops and all of those really fancy cereals. And in the cereal wars, the executives came up with their marketing team with a really brilliant set of commercials. See if you remember these, where it's just sort of a middle-aged man, morning routine, cup of coffee, pours some cereal into some into some cornflakes, and then it's just kind of 25 seconds of him sitting there eating cornflakes with this kind of interesting look on his face, and that's it for the commercial. And then at the end it just says, cornflakes, taste them again for the very first time. Anybody remember this commercial? Yeah. It was brilliant, actually, right? Because they realized, hey, we got a good thing here. People are just forgetting what it is. And that's kind of like Zacchaeus, right, the story. So I'm asking you this morning to listen to the story of Zacchaeus again for the very first time, as though you've never heard it before. And we'll just see whether there's some lessons here for us adults. I'm sorry I do not have the felt board. Um, I know you're going to be disappointed about that. This is a, I just came up with this on, online. It looked pretty cool. So you know, that'll have to suffice for you. So the story of Zacchaeus is in Luke 19, 1 to 10. And uh, let me just pray before I read the word of God. Father, we are opening your scripture now. We're opening your word, the living word of God. And uh, we know that there is not one wasted verse in here, Lord. And so we pray that you would open up our hearts in a childlike way again. Uh, that we would see why Luke has recorded this account for us and its significance and really 10 verses that are rich with theology and doctrine of who you are and truths about you and our salvation, uh, which we are, excuse me, never too old for. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 19, 1 to 10. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." So what I want to do this morning is start a little bit backwards. I want to start with the last verse. 
The last verse is really where we need to get our heads around. It's the point of the whole story. The final verse is the most valuable verse of this account. And for that matter, I would say it's the most valuable in all of Scripture. This is why we are saved. And it's the only reason that we are saved. God is a seeker and saver of those who are lost. From the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, 8-9, when Adam and Eve had sinned and God returns the next day to walk with them and asks the question, where are you? God became a seeker and saver of hiding sinners. It started in the garden and continues to now. Ezekiel, later on in the Old Testament, a prophet of God, quotes God saying, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the weak. And so we have to remember that God is the seeker. He is the one who is going after those who are scattered. And Paul in Romans 3, 11 to 18, tells us the same message from the other side of the coin, from those from humanity's side. He says, of us, no one understands. No one of us seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he goes on for six more verses describing the human condition, having deceptive mouths, feet being ready to shed blood, paths that lead to ruin, and all the rest of it. And so Scripture tells us that God is the seeker of us, and Scripture tells us that none of us seek after God. No man seeks after God. All are lost. And so we are grateful that God seeks after us. In our rebellion, in our blindness, in our ignorance, under the burden of sin, we cannot seek after God on our own. And we don't seek after God. And so there would be no reconciliation. There would be no salvation. There would be no restoration if God did not seek, if he was not the seeker and the saver of those who would hide from him or run from him, those who would be lost. And we can look a little bit at that word lost and even ask, what does Jesus mean or what does Scripture mean by the lost? Not just lost as in not really sure what the right way to go is, not just lost in terms of blinded by the world and sort of uh, in a fog and not able to find our way. The, the word that's used for lost here in the Greek is apolumi. And it's a strengthened word of the shorter word alumi. And this strengthened word signifies to destroy utterly. Or to perish. So the idea is ruin or loss of well-being. And so it's not just you're lost as in you're confused. You're lost as in lost at sea. You're lost as in ending up destroyed, as in ruin. That is who Jesus has come to save. So the Son of Man was incarnated. The Son of Man has come into this world for the purpose of pursuing and saving those who are in a condition of ruination or of being destroyed. So Jesus didn't come just to be a good teacher. He did not come to administer social justice. He did not come to upset the political order. He did not come to show us what a good life looks like. Jesus came into the world, he says out of his own mouth, to seek and save those who are unable to save themselves and will be destroyed, the lost. That is the purpose of Jesus, and it's the reason for our salvation. It's the only reason any of us are saved is because God's a seeker. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. For what purpose? That he might bring us to God. This is why Christ came and suffered. This is his purpose. And so in doing so, we know Christ accomplished many other things. He, he did 
have things to say about social justice, and he did teach us a better way of life, and he was a good example, but his purpose for coming was to seek and save the lost. And that's what this story is about, and that's why I wanted to start there in that final verse. Because if you don't hear Jesus' final word on the matter, you might think that this is a story about Zacchaeus seeking Jesus and somehow being rewarded for his efforts in seeking Jesus. But as we look closer, we're going to see that it's actually something far more surprising taking place. And we're also going to see that God is not just seeking sinners in a general way, but he is seeking sinners in a very specific and personal way. In other words, God did not just come to save sinners in general. God came to seek and save sinners, me and you, by name. He came to seek you. This account here of Zacchaeus follows in Luke very closely after Luke 15 where we find the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal or the lost son. And now we're told not a parable this time, but an account of the Son of Man, Jesus, finding another man, Zacchaeus. The sheep, the coin, the son that is lost are not just parables, they're not just general ideas of God's saving, they are very personal. And it's interesting, in all three of those parables, they end with joy. First of all, in 15.7, it says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. In 15.10, it says there's joy before the angels of God for one sinner who repents. In verse 24.15, my son is dead and he is alive, and then they began to celebrate. And the point here is that God finds joy in seeking and rescuing the lost. And that's a really good deal for us. It is good for us that God delights in his rescuing of us. And so now we see how this account of Zacchaeus unfolds, this truth of God seeking and his joy in it for us. So let's look at the man, going back to the beginning. Let's look at who the man is. It says, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So Jesus is passing through Jericho. And he's on his way back to Jerusalem for the last time. This is the last sort of interaction outside of Jerusalem that Jesus has with anybody. Uh, From this point on now, this is he goes into his passion and his crucifixion ultimately. There's nothing particularly special about Jericho. It's just a city that you have to pass through on this particular road to get to Jerusalem. Um, You might notice that its walls are a little bit newer than other ancient cities. Um, But apart from that, there's nothing particularly special about it. It's a busy trading city that Jesus travels through. It's notable to us because this man Zacchaeus lives there, and he was a chief tax collector. In other words, he was a Jewish man who had purchased a tax franchise from the occupying Roman forces and was collecting the taxes on behalf of the Romans. Now, the Romans established a tax amount that they expected from a region, and anyone could buy the rights to collect those taxes, and the Romans didn't really care how they got their taxes. As long as they got their payday, you could continue to run the franchise. And so I'm not going to belabor the obvious. It ran pretty much like organized crime would run in any city. And being a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus owned the rights to collect in Jericho or some portion of it, and he had an army of little tax collectors that went out door-to-door, neighborhood-to-neighborhood, gathered all the taxes. They brought all the taxes back to him. He paid them a little slice off the bottom. He took a big slice off the top, and the rest of it went to Rome. Now, I just want to pause here and just think about this, because we've run into tax collectors a few times in the Gospels before. And to be a Jew... And to decide that this is how you are going to make your living, and to be a Jew and not just decide to make your living this way, but to get very rich doing this at the cost of your own people, it does say something about that person's character. 
We often run into our opinion of tax collectors from the crowds that despise them, and we'll get there in this story. But let's just pause for a minute and think what this means about the heart of Zacchaeus, that he is a Jew that would choose to make his living this way and to get rich this way. Because Zacchaeus' parents had good intentions for him. When little baby Zac was born, they gave him this great name, Zacchaeus, that means transparent and pure and righteous. They were very disappointed when baby Zac grew up to become a tax collector, right? And I'm sure the irony of his name is not lost on his fellow citizens when he comes around to collect their taxes. You know, baby righteous coming to take my Roman taxes and skim his piece off the top. But in order to buy this franchise and enrich himself in this way, it's not hard to figure out that Zacchaeus must have really loved money. He loved money so much that he was willing to sacrifice a lot on the altar of money. His love of money caused him to sacrifice his good name among his people. His love of money caused him to sacrifice his integrity, to deal dishonestly. He sacrificed his loyalty to Israel, colluding with the Romans. He sacrificed friendships and probably family along the way, choosing this way of life. In order to sacrifice all of that in your life, you have to really love the object of your affection. And in this case, with Zacchaeus, he loved money. So he didn't care about his reputation, he didn't care about his friends, he didn't care about his, you know, his patriotism or loyalty to Israel, he didn't care about any of that stuff as long as he got rich. He could lose all of that just fine. So the question then comes to us, what is in our heart that we love so much that we are willing to sacrifice for, for the love of money or the love of high esteem among others or simply the love of self, for the love of being able to say at the end of the day, today I got my way, I got what I wanted, too bad about you other people that I had to offend or step over or just ignore so that I could get what I wanted at the end of the day. I'm sorry that you had to sacrifice for the love of my life, which is me. Do we sacrifice our family? Do we sacrifice our integrity? Do we sacrifice our purity? Do we sacrifice the purity of others in order to get what we want? Because it's the love of our heart. The thing that drives us the way money drove Zacchaeus. What is it that we are sacrificing in order to get what we treasure apart from Christ? That's the man Zacchaeus. He loves money. But maybe it's a little bit of us as well. Well, that's the man. Let's look at the situation. It says, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So this man, hears Jesus is coming through town and he finds in himself now a new desire. He finds in himself some sort of desire growing that he wants to see who Jesus was. He's not just indifferent. He's curious, at least. He wants to find out. And two weeks ago, when we looked into Simon and the sinful woman, we saw a different kind of man, a Pharisee, who was also curious about Jesus, also seeking to see who Jesus was. But for Simon, he had a very different attitude, you might remember. He was cool and aloof and kind of measuring Jesus up. But we see here that this desire that came up in Zacchaeus' house, in in his heart, he has a different kind of desire to see Jesus. And, And we see in the story why it was different. Instead of being coolly detached and measuring Jesus up and deciding if Jesus was equal to the dignity of him as Simon did, here we see that Zacchaeus is not concerned about those things at all. Being a little man and being well-known and well-disliked as the 
crowds of people are there to see Jesus pass by. If you've ever been at a parade and you're, you know, trying to get to the front of the line because you're kind of short and you're not going to see the floats or whatever or the people pass and you're at the back and you want to get to the front, you're trying to elbow your way through or slide sideways or duck under tall people's elbows. Well, these people all hate Zacchaeus. So you can just imagine them closing ranks, right? Like you're the last person we're letting to the front of the line to see Jesus pass by. So all these people are crowded in. Zacchaeus can't get there. They're not going to let him get there. It says on account of the crowd, he could not. So he runs ahead. He takes off. So he starts hiking up his robes and running down the road to get ahead of people. And he then climbs a tree when he gets there. Now, it's interesting that Luke, again, in chapter 15, has just recently told us about another dignified man who ran. You remember the story of the prodigal son. And one of the shocking things in that story to the people of the time was that this dignified father would run down the lane to meet with his prodigal son. And so here we have another wealthy, dignified man of the city who is now running ahead. And then not only that, he's climbing a tree, probably joining a whole bunch of eight, nine, ten-year-olds who are already up there to see Jesus. And so here we have a grown man, dignified, running down the street and then climbing a tree in his robes. Zacchaeus doesn't care because this passion that he has, this new affection in his heart, he desires to see Jesus. And like the sinful woman, he's willing to pay any cost of social dignity in order to find out who Jesus is and what he's about. And so what I see here is that for the first time, perhaps, something other than money has begun to capture Zacchaeus's heart. He is now interested in something else. And he's willing to sacrifice in order to discover what it is that has awoken in his heart. He's curious, sure. The rest of the crowd was curious, but Zacchaeus is more than just curious because he's willing to behave in this way to find out. He knows the kind of man he is, and he knows Jesus is something different. Jesus seems to have what Zacchaeus needs, and like the sinful woman, Zacchaeus is finally willing to pay a price to discover who Jesus is. That's the situation. Now we see that salvation comes says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So when Zacchaeus finally does get up that tree and Jesus comes within sight of him, Zacchaeus is shocked and surprised to discover that, in fact, it is Jesus that has been looking for him. So out of all of this throng of people, all of these hundreds, thousands of people at Jericho who are lining the streets that you can't even get through to see Jesus. He walks by all of them, and when he comes to Zacchaeus, he looks at him, and then he calls him by his own name, and then he tells him to come, and then he invites himself into Zacchaeus' house. And so here, Zacchaeus thought he was the one that was seeking Jesus. He thought he was the one that was trying to find Jesus. And now it seems that Jesus was looking for him all along. Because Jesus says, I must stay in your house today. In other words, you're the guy I've been looking for. You were part of my plan before I even got to the city of Jericho. It's you and your house who I have come looking for. I didn't come looking for these other people. I came looking for you, Zacchaeus. And in fact, I'm now inviting myself into your life. So put the kettle on or kill the fatted calf or bake the pita breads. I don't know, whatever it is you do to welcome people into your home, I'm now inviting myself in. I see you, I call you, I'm coming. 
And so you see why that last verse is the place to start in this account. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was coming all along to find Zacchaeus. And we need to be clear here that Zacchaeus as a person was of no account of his own merits. It was not his righteousness that attracted Jesus. It wasn't because he was living up to some standard. It's not even his seeking that brought him to the attention of Jesus. Everything that is happening is that Jesus has had Zacchaeus in his mind before he even came to Jericho. And it was Jesus seeking Zacchaeus out. In fact, if we understand this doctrine, like I said, this is rich in doctrine. If we understand our doctrine well, we realize that Jesus didn't just have Zacchaeus in mind before he started his trip to Jericho. Jesus had Zacchaeus in mind before he even started creating the earth. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So when Jesus calls to Zacchaeus, I choose you, he had already chosen Zacchaeus before the foundation of the world, not just before he came to Jericho. And then we see the response. When Jesus calls to Zacchaeus, I choose you, Zacchaeus, then we see Zach's response. He hurried and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus does not hesitate in response to the Lord's call. His heart is prepared already. Remember that affection that had started to work itself up in Zacchaeus' heart that he was willing to sacrifice in order to go and find out who Jesus was. Well, that affection, that new affection that Zacchaeus found being born in his heart now comes into full fruition. And at the instant of the call, Zacchaeus responds and receives Jesus joyfully. And so what we have unfolding here in very concise textual format, it's so concise, but it's the seeking and the calling of Jesus and the joyful response that that call leads to in salvation and in transformation. So we have salvation, but then we have transformation. And we see, and I'll just touch on verse 7, it says, And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And verse 7 is almost redundant at this point in the Gospel of Luke, but of course nothing is redundant in Scripture. But we are told again to make it crystal clear that nobody saw any merit in Zacchaeus. Nobody saw any merit in the people that Jesus has chosen to save. The, this Zacchae, Zacchaeus guy is a greedy, he's a traitor, he's a thief, he's an extortionist, he's deceitful. None of the people think that this is who Jesus should be showing any honor to. But the interesting thing is that in the Gospel of Luke, this is the sixth time that Jesus has interacted with or referred to tax collectors. And in all six times, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 15, chapter 18, chapter 19, Jesus always mentions them and speaks to them in a positive light. And everyone else always responds negatively. So that should give tax collectors a great deal of encouragement. If you work for the CRA, perhaps some of you do or are involved in tax collection, you should be encouraged because Jesus is very positive about tax collectors. And it should give us pause when we grumble about tax collectors every April um, because Jesus is always positive of the tax collectors that he interacts with. None of us, like Jewish tax collectors, 
have any qualifications to be counted as righteous alongside Jesus. None of us have any merit to be called his friend. None of us should be adopted as a brother or sister of Christ. And yet this is what Jesus has called us to. Jesus the righteous has come to rescue the unrighteous. And like I said, as a very concise textual account, we are not told all of the conversation that Zacchaeus and Jesus have during his visit. At this point in the Gospel, Luke has already recorded the Gospel of Jesus several times. It's repent, trust, believe, be saved. But what we do see that Luke wants to emphasize is not so much the Gospel message, is the end result of what a saving encounter with Jesus looks like, and it looks like complete transformation and a new affection in your heart. He says, Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So what can we take from this statement about who the man Zacchaeus is now? Well, I see three things. The first thing is that it is a confession of misplaced affection. It's a confession of idolatry. Zacchaeus is basically saying, I have loved money too much. Money has too powerful a grip over me. I have far more wealth than I really need, and I'm going to give half of everything I own back to the poor. So Zacchaeus, immediately on encountering Jesus and having this new affection burst into full flame, he immediately begins to loosen his grip on materialism and wealth, and he loosens his grip on the false security of money and the false importance of it. Because his new affection now is Christ. His affection is no longer money. And immediately he begins to divest himself of that old idol in his life. That's what a saving encounter with Jesus Christ does. We realize that those old things that we hung on to for security and for identity and for purpose and for meaning are nothing compared to acquiring Christ. It's also a confession of sin. He says, if I defrauded anyone, I will give them four times the money back. And now, remember, this is not a parable. This is not a metaphor. This is not, you know, the the wealthy master and the servant, and he owed him 50,000 talents, or, you know, he gave it back, and everybody's like, oh, that's amazing, he forgave this gigantic debt. Well, that's okay, but it's a parable. It's all just a story. But this isn't a metaphor. This is not a parable. This is real money. This is real debt. So if we think that Zacchaeus had been collecting taxes and cheating people on taxes all the way along as he did it for years, you can imagine the lineup of people at his door the next day in Jericho to get paid back four times what he stole from them. This is a real man. This is a real account. This is real money that he is saying, I am going to pay back for my sin. I'm going to do what I can to make right what I have wronged. So it's a confession of sin. It's an admission of his guilt. This is probably hundreds, if not thousands, of talents, not just a few denarii. He's repenting of the way of life. He's turning away from sinful practice, and he's turning towards righteous practice. He's supporting the poor. He's paying back those that he sinned against. And thirdly, it's an acceptance of lordship. Notice that he calls him Lord. He's basically saying, Jesus, you are now my greatest affection, and you are now the greatest authority in my life. Money used to control my heart, but now you do. And so what the text shows us is a radical change that's taken place in Zacchaeus' values. He realizes that this person that he has encountered is the pearl of great price. He realizes that he has met the treasure found buried in a field. And he will have to give up his old loves. He will have to give up his old life. He will have to give up his old treasures in order to acquire him. If I was to go home today and start writing checks for half of my possessions, you would know that something dramatic has happened to me. I'm not saying that this text is saying everyone has to give up half of what they own today. That's not what Luke is trying to point out here. 
He's trying to point out that when you have a saving encounter with Jesus Christ, it has a dramatic impact on your life and your heart starts to change and you start to change your affections and change your way of life. That's what, that's what Luke wants to bring the emphasis to. He wants to show in a personal way what has been taught in parable form before. That when we see Jesus for who He is, it results in this life-transforming change. And in this case, Jesus, or sorry, Zacchaeus gives up what he treasured most, which is money. But for us, it might be other things. Luke 12, 33-34, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it causes all of us to reflect. Where are we spending our time? Where are we spending our money? Where are we spending our affection? Where are we spending our loves? Our heart is there. And if it's not on Jesus and his kingdom, then where is it? This is what this account of Zacchaeus brings to light. It means the things that we used to sacrifice to acquire will in turn become our sacrifices to Jesus. That thing I used to treasure most, I will now give up in order to acquire what I treasure far more. If I treasured my own time, you know, to myself and doing what I want to do, I give up, you know, the, the precious time that I coveted to myself. I'm willing to give that up as a sacrifice now to Jesus and His kingdom and what He would have do. If I cherish the accolades of men and my, you know, esteem among people, I'm now willing to care nothing about esteem among people if it will bring glory to Jesus or for me to do what needs to be done in the kingdom. In other words, I'm willing to sacrifice that thing that I used to treasure so carefully in order to treasure Christ. I mean, Zacchaeus here, this is a guy that could afford to tithe probably quite easily and not even notice. I mean, if he just was to follow the law, 10% of what his income is, 10% even of his wealth, he probably spends more than 10% of his income just in bribes. He could tithe and not even notice. So Zacchaeus says, no, I'm going to give away 50%. And then after I give away 50%, then I'm going to also pay back four times any debt that I owe to people that I defrauded. And somebody last night did a little bit of quick mental math and realized that if he, say, had a million dollars, just to pick a number, add as many zeros as you want, if he gave away 50%, that's 500000 But then afterwards, if you figure that he gained about 10% of his wealth from deceit, or trickery, then he would have to give away 40% of the remaining 50% just to pay back the people the 10% that he had cheated them out of, leaving him with 10% of what he originally started with. So Zacchaeus is basically making a statement here that I'm basically giving everything away. I'm giving away half of what I have, and then the money that I've earned dishonestly, I'm giving away four times as much of that. So Zacchaeus is basically saying, I'm divesting myself of this old idol in my life. He says, the thing that I now have, I count everything else as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ. As Paul says later on in Philippians, exact same experience. So we have salvation, we have transformation, and then we have adoption. Verse 9, it says, And Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So Jesus says, I sought you, I've saved you, I've seen the transformation in your heart. I see the new affection that you have. You are now a true son of Abraham, which is probably the second or third shocking thing that Jesus has done and said in front of this crowd for them to hear. They're basically saying now he's a son of Abraham? What do you mean? I mean, Zacchaeus, he's born a Jew. He's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Are we not all children of Abraham? Why would you say that? And Jesus is saying, well, ethnically that might be true, but spiritually now he's a son of Abraham. 
In Matthew 3, 9, it's interesting. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees who considered themselves the elite of the Jewish people and firmly in the bosom of Abraham. And he says to them, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And Jesus is essentially saying to them, uh, Don't count yourself so special just yet. If God wants children of his own, he could get them from anywhere he wants them. He doesn't need you as his children. Don't think being Jewish will protect you or following the law gives you some sort of special privilege. He goes on to say in verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus says the true test of your heritage is the affection of your heart and the outpouring of that in action as we've seen in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has had his affections changed and it's changed his behavior. And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 3, 10 and 9 and 10. But it's also what he's saying in Luke verse 9. He's saying salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Paul says it as well in Romans 2, 28 to 29. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. And so Jesus now is saying, this man is now true Israel. I've seen the evidence of it. This is a tree that won't get cut down. This is a tree that now has eternal life. Now we can actually call him Zacchaeus pure, transparent, righteous one that his parents hoped that he would become. Well, now Zacchaeus is counted as such. He is counted as righteous. Now that does not mean for Zacchaeus that he is never going to sin again. It doesn't mean that the old idol of his heart won't raise itself up again in his flesh. It doesn't mean that he is exempt from an ongoing struggle with sin. And that'll be true of us as well when we put our new affection on Christ and we are a new creation and we are a true son of Israel. It doesn't mean that all of that stuff disappears. It didn't disappear for us. It wouldn't disappear for Zacchaeus. It doesn't mean that he's exempt from all of that. But what it does mean is that he has been adopted into the family of God and is now certain of his reward. What it means is that Jesus sought him and has saved him. That's what it means for Zacchaeus. And it's interesting when we think about what this means for Zacchaeus and the rest of his life, we don't really hear about Zacchaeus again. We don't know where he went from here. But it's interesting that in Luke's gospel, he's named. And as you go through the gospel, it's kind of interesting that the people that Jesus actually interacted with historically, some are named and some are not. I mean, there's a, a cripple or a leper who is unnamed, and then you have Bartimaeus who is blind who is named. Uh, there's a tax collector uh, Zacchaeus is actually, of the other tax collectors, he's only the second one named, uh, Levi, who becomes Matthew, is obviously named, and Zacchaeus is named. And so uh, tradition would have it, or some people who do textual criticism say that when Luke went to write the gospel later on, 10, 15 years later, he wrote in the names of the people that the, that the early church would recognize. And so there's evidence here that perhaps Zacchaeus would be is named, and not just a tax collector, but he's named as Zacchaeus because when Luke wrote the gospel, he knows that the church would know who Zacchaeus was. And if you actually go back to the church fathers and you read um, Clement of Rome, in his writings, he was around at the same time as Peter and other disciples, and he mentions in one of his sermons that Zacchaeus continued faithfully in ministry alongside Nicodemus and Aquila, excuse me, and Peter and the other apostles, and that he served Christ with his whole life. 
And then later on, another Clement, Clement of Alexandria, mentions that Zacchaeus may have actually been elevated to the bishop of Caesarea and eventually replaced there by Cornelius. So we have these tantalizing little hints of the future of Zacchaeus after this life-transforming encounter with Jesus that he never went back, finally, to money, that he, he did give it all away, that he did remain faithful, that the seed that was planted of the gospel of Jesus Christ was fruitful in his life. What does this mean for us, this Sunday school story of Zacchaeus? The account of Zacchaeus is present here, I think, just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final time to make it crystal clear that this is not just hypotheticals, this is not just parables, this is not just metaphors about a coin or a sheep or a prodigal son or a could have been or would have been. This story of the account of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is named here to make it clear before Jesus goes to the cross that he has come to seek and save the lost, not in just some general way, but in the way in which that as we find in our heart an affection to try to discover who Jesus is, to know who he is, Jesus responds to that prompting of the Holy Spirit to call us by name and essentially say, you thought that you were looking for me, but I have been looking for you all along. For those of us that know Christ, when we look back on our salvation, almost to a person, we can affirm that, can't we? That we thought we were looking for Jesus. But when we finally came, we realized he was seeking us. He was hunting us down. It was him that called us by name to bring us into the family. To seek and to save sinners who have no merit of their own. This is why Jesus has come. People who have no expectation that they would be personally called by name. That Jesus would invite himself into their life and say, ready or not, I'm coming over. Ready or not, I'm entering into your life. I'm bringing myself in. It's not you, it's me. And it's quite surprising. And we discover that Jesus would give us a new identity as a son of God, that that we would have this new life, that we would be set free and be able to loosen our grip on those old idols and things in our life, and we'd be able to follow him. There's probably some Zacchaeuses here today. You probably know some Zacchaeuses in your life. You know the people that are sitting in the tree. They're kind of curious. They're at a distance. They want to know who Jesus is, but they're not all that certain about him. They're hoping to see, wondering if he is more lovely, wondering if he is worth far more than any other other idol that they happen to have in their life and that they've been sacrificing to, and maybe that they're tired of sacrificing to. Maybe there's Zacchaeuses here. I know that we all know some Zacchaeuses. Well, what Zacchaeus discovered instantly is that Christ is worth far more than any other idol in your life. And what Zacchaeus discovered is that that day salvation could come to him because Jesus was seeking him and Jesus was calling him. And today is the day that you can respond to that call and that you can be saved and that you can be transformed and that you can be adopted into the family of God. And so what we want to do is we want to put Jesus on display for those Zacchaeuses so that as they look into our life, they are captivated by our love and our treasuring and our cherishing of Jesus. And they see that there is a higher affection. There is a better God. Because what actually transpired here is that Zacchaeus changed gods. His God was money at the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, 
his Lord was Jesus. That's what took place. That's what Jesus is doing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of this man, Zacchaeus. That this is not just parables. This is not just metaphors. This is not just similes. This is reality. You knew us before the foundation of the world and you chose us. And you come and you put yourself in our path and you put yourself into our life and you call us by name and you save us. Father, I pray for anyone here who has been sitting in the tree trying to see what Jesus is like. I pray that your Holy Spirit would even now be calling them by name, saying, I am a greater treasure. I am a better God to serve than anything that you've been sacrificing to, that you can let go of those old things and become new. Father, I pray for us as a people that we put you on display in that way in the lives of our family and our friends, that when people look at us, they see the cherishing and the treasuring that we have of you. They see what we are willing to sacrifice to follow you. They see all the things that we are willing to give up in pursuit of you. And they say, who is this that is worth so much? That that testimony and that light might shine in their life. That by our good works, they would know that we are your children, that they would come to know you. Father, this is, this is what you're about. You are a seeker and a savior, and it's why Jesus came. We give you thanks that you sought and you saved us. In Christ's name, amen.